Hello and welcome to Subject to Change with me, Russell Hogg. My guest today is Christopher de Belague. Christopher is a journalist and historian. He has many strings to his bow, among these a particular interest and expertise in the Islamic world. And today we're going to be talking about the world of Suleiman the Magnificent, who is the subject of Christopher's book, The Lion House. And uh, The Lion House is an extraordinary history of the time, and you feel you're right there. You sort of got this incredibly tactile feel to it. You feel you're, you're there in the palaces, you're there on campaign with the characters whose lives Christopher is recording. And I think it's... I think it's an unabashed masterpiece. Anyway, uh, welcome, Christopher, to the podcast. Do you say that to all your guests, Russell? I I generally say that I like their book because I wouldn't have them on if I don't like their book. But this um, this is a history that's not like histories that you normally read. Uh, well, l- well, let me just make one th- point about the book, which is that I guess you must hear people say that there's a resemblance to Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall, because partly because it's written in the present tense. And I, and I wondered, as I was reading it, was that something that you were consciously doing, or, or is this just something that happened by chance? I think it must have happened through osmosis, because I'm, I, read, I read two of the three um, Cromwell books, and was hugely affected by them. But that was quite a long time before I sat down to write The Lion House. And The Lion House was written on the basis of a proposal that was quite different. I mean, not the subject matter, but the the way I treated the subject matter. And so I think Hilary Mantel must have come into my brain in a much more profound way than than I originally thought when I was reading the books. I I started to write uh, The Lion House during lockdown and there was something about the intensity of that period and the intensity of our incarceration that made a made a a, a less discursive a less wide-ranging um book kind of seem more natural something more claustrophobic something more atmospheric something less um historical if 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 that makes sense yeah by historical i mean that you're constantly and i've written books like this you you're constantly cross-referencing you're jumping forward to the future you're saying to the reader we know more than they did at the time um and we also know that 200 years after this particular event another particular event happened that completely negated what they were thinking at the time and and we use our vision and our hindsight in order to apply all those historical tricks and and masteries that make a conventional history. This is quite different. You've got a narrator. We don't really know who the narrator is, but he or she is knows exactly what's going on, but only at that precise moment. Right. And doesn't know what's going to happen next. And I think if you feel, and I'm very glad that you say that you felt that you were there, if you feel that you're there, it's because the narrator is there and the narrator doesn't know what's going to happen next. And so everything is taken, as it were, on face value. And if someone brings, a, if someone brings the, um, there's a lot about presence and a lot about 
ceremonial and one-upmanship of that kind in the book. And if someone brings a unicorn <laughs> uh, horn from Venice and presents it to the sultan, and the sultan is thrilled with that, then who am I as the narrator to say, well, actually, this is from a whale somewhere, and it's not unicorn, and let's get real. But we don't get real. We're with, with, we're with them. We're, we believe in what they believe. And a close contemporary, because this was sort of coming back to the Wolf Hall theme, a close contemporary of Suleiman the Magnificent is Henry VIII of England, and I think only a few years separate their births, although I think Suleiman lasts quite a bit longer. But I'm struck more by the differences than by the similarities. And an example that I was thinking of was that when Henry's wife, Catherine of Aragon, doesn't provide him with a male heir, divorcing her proves to be an absolute nightmare for him. And when he's courting Anne Boleyn, she keeps him at a distance to the extent I think they only consummate the relationship about seven years after it begins. So do you want to say a bit about how they arrange, how differently they arrange matters in the Ottoman court? <laughs> that's, a, that's an extremely good point, Russell. And I hadn't quite thought about um, those, those dynastic matters in, in quite that way, because when I tend to think of Henry VIII, I tend to think of something very, someone very inept, in these matters and and who actually drags the entire system of England in a particular direction um because he's he's following his dick <laughs> and so in there is another kind of dystopia going on in the Ottoman empire and that is that you have a a, a demand for procreation a demand to produce males the sultan is not bound by marriage in order uh, to, to one particular woman. Um, there's no question of divorce because he has any number of concubines that he wants. From any number of concubines, he can sire a son who may go on to become the sultan. So there's no problem with exchanging one woman for another. Um, what happens in the Lion House and what happens to Suleiman the Magnificent, which is a little bit what it is extremely innovative is that, in fact, he falls in love and he ends up marrying someone. And that is unheard of in that particular time in the Ottoman Empire. But then you have the question which is also pertinent when you're making these comparisons, which is the question of primogeniture. So if you have, let's say, eight sons and you're the sultan, then it is by no means preordained that the eldest son will become the sultan. On the contrary, these sons will have to fight it out. And in a way, it's a self-fulfilling, it, it, it's, it, it's justified by the result. What I mean by that is that whoever wins that battle royal between the sons will have been chosen by God and will therefore have merited the title of sultan and the throne that comes with it and all the power that comes with being sultan of the Ottoman Empire. So this is something, these are, these are the things that are in play and that weren't in play, for example, for Henry VIII or Francis I or Charles V, who are all, the four of them are the four great pillars of, of European monarchy at the time. 
And how does the harem work? Because I never get a sense um, how big the institution is. Are we talking about tens of women are in there, hundreds? I, I just have no sense of the size of the institution. I have no sense of what happens to a concubine who's no longer desired or what happens when a concubine gets older. Uh, no, I've, I've no sense of how these things actually worked. Well, there was a lot of writing about the harem from the first Western ambassadors that went there to much later Orientalists. A lot of it was distorted in one way or another. But the harem is, at the time of Suleiman, is a large institution. It's more than tens. It's into the hundreds. But this is a pool from which um, the eunuchs and the senior women in the harem select likely prospects for the sultan. So the sultan doesn't necessarily see all of these women, and he certainly doesn't meet or enter conjugal relations with all of these women. Some of them will never come into his presence, but they will be educated to a very elite level in the crafts and the skills that are considered becoming at the time. Embroidery, Quran, correct deportment, all sorts of things um, that are considered desirable in a woman, and then they will be married to other officials in the empire. Those that do enter the sultan's bedroom, if he likes them and he wants them to come back, and if they become pregnant, and if they have a male child, then that is the end of their association, of their sexual association with the sultan. And that male child will stand a chance to become sultan later on. And as mother of that male child, it is incumbent on the woman in question to raise him and bring him up in the best way possible so that he stands the best chance of becoming sultan. Because not only will that benefit him, but it will also benefit her because she'll be the mother of the sultan. And if he doesn't become the sultan, there's a very good chance that he will be killed and she will either be killed or thrown out and rendered destitute or, at any rate, very precarious economically. Now, again, in the case of Suleiman the Magnificent, something quite revolutionary happens. There's a concubine who is part of this extraordinary trade in slaves that your earlier guest David Abulafia spoke so eloquently about, which comes through Kaffa in the Crimea. Um, her name was, well, certainly her name once she converted to Islam, became Muslim, having been purchased in the Istanbul slave market, became Hurem, which means joyful. Uh, she's known in the West as Roxolana. And she and the Sultan fell in love which was unheard of. And she kept coming back and she kept giving him children. And in the end, he married her. And all of these things were scandalous, absolutely scandalous. And she developed a very strong hold over him. And it was said that she had bewitched him. She clearly exerted a strong, a strong influence over him. And he was very much, he was very devoted to her and very in love with her. And so this is one of the great themes of Suleiman's reign. And you mentioned in the book, I think in relation to another character, but maybe it's uh, 
maybe it's relevant to Hurem as well, which is that you say the Sultan is lonely. And, and one of the reasons that he's lonely is that he has very few male relatives because they've been cleared off the board beforehand. Yeah, I was thinking about this today because I'm writing the second installment in the Suleiman biography because this the Lion House really only carry, covers the first 16 years or so of his of his of his um, sultanate and I was trying to reflect on this and again it it, it strikes you like a hammer blow Suleiman's father Selim who was on the throne for a very short period of time more than doubled the territorial extent of the empire. He was a fantastic soldier, a fantastic leader of men, but quite remarkably cruel and ruthless. And he extended a practice that was already in existence, but hadn't been um, brought to this level before of killing his male relatives. He started by killing, we're pretty sure, his father. He certainly deposed him. And then we think he killed him. He then killed his brothers. And if one bears in mind that he had, I think, six female uh, daughters who survived childhood or survived infancy and just one son, it's perfectly possible he had more than one son and that they too were killed. Suleiman was the only one of his male relations to survive. And so when he when his father died of the plague, quite unexpectedly, his period seemed to be just beginning because he'd just taken Egypt, he'd just smashed the Iranians, and he was now going to turn his attention to, to Christendom and to Europe. When he died of the plague and Suleiman became sultan, there was no one around him. He, he had his mother and his sisters, but there was no male relative. And he attached himself in a very deep, emotional way to a slave who had been brought into his household when he was the, I won't say crown prince, because that's a Western term, it's an anachronism, but when he was, he was a prince and he was serving an apprenticeship as a governor, provincial governor. And this slave who had been plucked from a beach in Albania his father was a trader in animal skins, but he had extraordinary talents and he was he was given a very good education by the woman who bought him and became a good musician and very intellectually curious, highly ambitious. They became extremely attached to each other. And so when he came to Istanbul on his father's death, full of trepidation, he brought Ibrahim, as he was called, with him. And they were a duo. They were a partnership. Within three years, Ibrahim, who was, who was a slave, had no experience of public office, had become the Grand Vizier of the Ottoman Empire. It is extraordinary. I was trying to think if anything like that would happen in England. And again, I came back to Henry VIII and Cromwell. And I suppose Cromwell was quite low-born too. Um, I mean, you say that Ibrahim was sort of very brilliant I sort of feel with Cromwell, there was a sense of, well, certainly in Hilary Mantel's Cromwell, I don't really know the reality. There's a you know profound judgment. But with Ibrahim, I sometimes feel like there's a man suffering from imposter syndrome. There's a sense of insecurity. 
about the way he carries on. I wondered if that was was your sense. That's a very that's a very perceptive thing, Russell, and I don't know because I haven't really given that very much thought. Uh, I, one should always kind of, and Hilary Mantel would say this herself: you shouldn't take her as as a historian. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> but having said that, it's a his, it's on the historical record that Cromwell had been a merchant. He'd been a mercenary. He'd been. He was well-traveled, and he had a sophistication, um, if not through birth and connections, then certainly through experience that lent itself to what he then went on to do. Ibrahim came from nowhere, and he converted, and his character of his grand vizierate was one of bluster and bling and grandeur and expense and he loved to be the person that foreign embassies came to see he loved to be strutting in the cockpit of european politics to know exactly what was going on to be buying gemstones from dealers in antwerp to be gossiping about henry and francis and charles v and it is extraordinary when you think where he came from. If he had imposture syndrome, then that might account for his very exaggerated kind of love of power um, and love of the position that he now occupied. What certainly, what certainly that led to was uh, the hubris that we know comes with extended periods of power, unquestioned power, the unquestioned love and devotion that the Sultan felt for him. You know, the Sultan promulgated legislation which said, you are to obey the word of Ibrahim as if it is my word. And this is the Ottoman Sultan. This is the vice regent of, of God on earth. And so it's not surprising that Ibrahim's head became ever so slightly inflated. <laughs> And he's a slave, as you say, he's plucked off the shores. And, and, and I talked, well, I, I talked about slavery with, uh, with uh, David Abalafia. And I suppose his point was that slavery covered such a wide spectrum of experience from, you know, the utterly pitiful lives to, to quite good lives. And Ibrahim, obviously, well, he's freed, presumably, once, uh, once he's taken into the court by by Suleiman, but but he's at he's at the top range. But are are all these slaves coming from Eastern Europe down through Kaffa? I mean, there must have been they must have been coming in in vast numbers at this time. I think they were coming in in large numbers. One route was certainly through the Tatars, who launched raids into what is now different parts of Ukraine, and. Certainly, Hurem or Roxolana is from um, Ruthenia, which is now northwestern Ukraine. And she came through Kaffa and then across the, the Black Sea, and then she was sold at the Istanbul slave market, we think, purchased by Ibrahim himself for his master. Um, but a, a larger number at this period came from 
the Balkans and Albania and also as piracy developed and as piracy was taken under the wing of the Ottoman Empire and some of these great pirates, Barbarossa being perhaps preeminent among them, were kind of legitimized by becoming, by being given positions in the Ottoman Admiralty, the Ottoman Navy. As their practices became part of Ottoman policy and the lifting up of slaves and the sale and then the pressing of those slaves into service, then you have a much more varied pool of people. But the Ottoman army and the Janissaries, for example, a 12,000 strong elite force, this at, at the turn of the 16th century was possibly the most effective fighting force in Europe. I mean, remarkable for their discipline, their abstemiousness, their silence until they went into battle when they became utterly terrifying. And if you think of Charles V's forces that descended on Rome in 1527, the famous sack of Rome, the citadel of Christian, Christianity being sacked and destroyed and ruined by another Christian power, and the behaviour of those, those soldiers in Rome. And then you compare that with the Janissaries, which were, which were contemporary Italian commentators used to comment on just how disciplined they were. Anyway, the point is that these people were utterly loyal to the Sultan and they were all first, first generation converts and they were part of the Devshirme system, which is essentially a levy on the conquered European territories. You go in and you say you're going to give us this number, such and such, and such a number of your finest young men, and you're never going to, we're going to take them off and we're going to circumcise them and we're going to convert them and they are going to enter our service. Now, in many cases, um, they entered the janissaries and in some cases they rose to high office. And in a small number of cases, they kept in contact with their families and they sent money to their families. And they may even have invited members of their families to come and join them in Istanbul. And, and, you know, these lines between Christendom and Islam and between the Ottomans and their enemies were very, very porous. Yes, that comes across very strongly in the book. And actually, one of the most porous bits of the book is, is Venice, who is forever trying to trade off, you know, their, you know, their relationship with the Ottomans is so important to them, but they're on the Christian mainland and they have to keep friends with everybody. And, um, well, do you just want to say a bit about Venice? Because it seems extraordinary that this, that this one town can be so significant in the history of the Mediterranean. It's not a huge empire the way the Ottomans are or the way the Romans were or, you know, Charles V's massive European uh, domain. So do you want to just explain a bit about the role that Venice had at this time? Yeah, I think, I think Venice is particularly fascinating because of the things that you've just outlined. But at the, at, at the time in which the Lion House is set, this is a, this is a, a great maritime empire 
in inexorable decline. I mean, first, you discover a way of getting to India and the Far East without going through the Mediterranean, without going through the Black Sea, so therefore you can you can avoid any contact with the Venetians. Second, you have the Ottoman Empire encroaching increasingly onto the Mediterranean, which is the Venetian lake. They have colonies spread out in tactically astute parts of the Mediterranean everywhere, um, and the Ottomans start encroaching on them. In 1453, Constantinople itself falls, and the Ottoman, the Venetians had a had a problematic relationship with the Byzantines. Um, in any case, and they struck a deal with the Ottomans that they would be able to continue to trade, and that they would they would provide the Ottomans with intelligence about what was happening in in Christian Europe, and that they would be a kind of bridge between the Ottomans and these Christian countries with which the Ottomans were not always at war by any means. Sometimes they were trading with them, sometimes they were negotiating them with them, sometimes they were in a position of strength and sometimes in a position of weakness. So the Venetians situated themselves very opportunistically, very cleverly, um, in the gap between the Ottomans and Christendom. And of course they remained a Christian power, of course they were. Um, they sent cardinals to Rome, um, they were nominally at least loyal to the idea of a crusade against the Ottomans. Um, but all the while, they were trying to prevent that from happening because their, the basis of their wealth, this town that is twice the size of Central Park and yet has a global reach, is utterly dependent on the relationship that they have with the Ottomans. And this is where Ibrahim comes into play because Ibrahim Pasha, born in Albania, but a part of Albania, Parga, that is in fact a Venetian colony, speaks Italian and is well disposed towards Venice. And so the Venetians get to Ibrahim and they say, they say to themselves, right, if we're going to survive in this new dispensation, we need to be friends with Ibrahim. And so they bring him lavish presents and they flatter him. Um, but they also have another secret weapon, and this is this goes back to again to Venice's long history of trading with Constantinople and through Constantinople. A lot of the patrician families in Venice have had members of their family who were based in Constantinople, or had ships that went through Constantinople and have tra- have had trading relationships with that town. And one of these families, the Grittis, um, produces the Doge of the time. And isn't it convenient that the Doge's own son, <laughs> who's a bastard, who's illegitimate, he cannot rise to any rank in, in Venice, he makes his way to Constantinople and becomes a trader and a middleman and a wheeler and a dealer. And then suddenly overnight, he becomes the son of the Venetian doge, and the Ottomans realize that having him there is extremely valuable. And any of your listeners who have been to Istanbul will, knowingly or not, have been in a part of the town called Beolu, which means the son of the prince. And Beolu is, name, is 
called after this individual, Alvisa Gritti, because he was called the Baolu, the son of the prince. And his palace, uh, he was fantastically wealthy. His palace was in that saddle of, of Istanbul that is now extremely visited and everyone knows. Hmm. Well, the Ottomans certainly ought to like the Venetians because in a sense, it's the Venetians who, I don't know, a couple of hundred years ago managed to pretty much gut the Byzantine Empire of of all its trading posts, all its trading routes, and it goes into sort of an inevitable decline. Obviously, they've lost important land battles, but but you know, you can't come back once once all your sources of wealth have been taken off you. And I think the Venetians, you know, with the Fourth Crusade, bear quite a heavy responsibility for that. I think it's an important point in that it in that it illustrates the inability of Christendom very broadly defined to unite against uh, what is seen as a civilizational enemy. And everyone kind of sees that and everyone thinks that it's true. And on a rhetorical level, everyone's talking about it. But actually policy and action and expediency argue in the, in the opposite direction. And book two of this of this life of Suleiman that I'm writing will will feature a the alliance between France and the Ottoman Empire, which is utterly scandalous. This is the most Christian king. Francis I is called and calls himself the most Christian king. And yet he and Suleiman form a proper alliance, even more developed than that of the Venetians, which is a kind of de facto alliance. The, this is actually written down. It's 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 properly inked, and it's completely scandalous. And again, the po- the popes are saying you must all come together. We must unite. We must form a crusade. And the French are saying yes, that's a terribly good idea. Well, <laughs> but they've they've got this alliance. <laughs> yeah, yes, I don't want to. I, I don't want to give away too much about book one. I don't want to. Certainly, don't want to give away too much about book two. But I seem to remember. I don't know. I don't know if it's this time that uh, that uh, the Arabs are actually got a basin to lose, and uh, I think David Abalafia said that the that the cathedral has been turned into a mosque. I don't know if that can be true. It seems extraordinary. It's too it's too long, but you're absolutely right. It's too long rather than to lose. And Barbarossa, the, the the Turkish High Admiral, formerly a pirate, who has made his name and his career by enslaving. Uh, Christians on the high seas is now made welcome in Toulon and Toulon empties and they turn the town over him and he spends the winter there. And indeed, the the, um, the churches are turned into mosques. <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose, you know, one thing, I mean, it, for me, I'm sort of, you know, got a certain romantic streak about the Romans and the Byzantines and you hate to see it end. But I think what comes across very strongly in your book is that Constantinople under the Ottomans, just the, you know, it, it revives as a city and it becomes beautiful again. It, you know, it was a pretty much a run-down town under the Byzantines by the end. But now everything's being rebuilt, right? Absolutely. There's a very strong building program. There's, there's a new idiom in terms of the way that architecture is done. Palaces are, are different there inspired by a Turkic idea of a tenth city. The 
the Ottomans feel their way towards a synthesis between Byzantine architecture and the mosque building that they've been that the Turkic nations have been doing, the Seljuks and others, the Ilkhanids, the Mongols, uh, across Eurasia in this period. And that really comes to fruition a little bit later under, um, again under Suleiman the Magnificent with the rise of, a, of an extraordinary architect called Sinan, who transforms the Istanbul, not only Istanbul, but every city in the empire, all the way to Jerusalem, all the way to Basra, all the way to North Africa. There's a new idiom, and it's it's a it's a centralized, extremely recognizable idiom in terms of the way that architecture is done. And so, yes, we're seeing that in the Lion House. We're seeing these old Byzantine palaces collapse and be looted for their for their marble and their iron and their rivets and all of that being recycled and used again in this new architecture that's coming up. And so there is an extraordinary sense of of a, of two cities really coexisting, Constantinople and Istanbul existing at the same time and looking in different directions and there are moments in history when you, you have a sense of a of a town because of its strategic location because of its geographical and cultural complexities really occupying the navel of the world the center the center of everything and i think you have a strong sense of that in the istanbul of the lion house they are looking in every single direction i said in the introduction the sense that you felt you were there and you could sort of smell it and feel it and you describe the these this incredible ceremony where the sultan's sons are all presented and it's a rather terrifying scene in a way because I guess the four of them are looking at each other and presumably they know what the rules are that that, that they're not all going to live into, into old age because only one of them can rule. But they have this, this circumcision ceremony, which I think it becomes a thing in Ottoman society after this. I don't know if this is the first time something like this has been done. Do you want to say a bit about the circumcision ceremonies? I, I I don't know about this ceremonial aspect of, of circumcisions. My sense and and I'm afraid I this is a this is a gap in my knowledge. I I don't know if they've been elevated to quite this extent and become a a a statement of of um of imperial kind of policy and grandeur in quite the way this one is this is this takes place in 1530 there are other circumcision ceremonies that that follow um but this i think is is possibly the grandest of them all and it's written up by the foreign ambassadors in lavish detail and also by the ottoman chroniclers and you're very kind to say that the reader feels that they're there the, the reason why the reader feels that they're there is because i'm I try and be as faithful as possible to the eyewitness re- reports that I'm conveying. And they really were there. <laughs> and you get you get that sense with the circum I mean the the incredible expense, the quite extraordinary program of entertainments, the thousands of covers of food that are given to the janissaries, that are given to the poor, 
the um, pyromania that happens in the evenings with fireworks and 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 mock battles and this goes on for 14 days and it's all for these kids who are going to be circumcised and they are at the end that's the climax and they're paraded through the town on their horses and the town looks at them and they look at the town and everyone knows that only one of them is going to survive and and it's a terrifying and extraordinary moment you mentioned it in passing, but this sense of bling being important within the empire, the giving of presents, and you could give a present to give an insult, you could give a present almost as a bribe. It seemed incredible the extent to which wealth is on display, and if it's not on display, it's almost like it doesn't count. But also in Islam, you've got this, uh, I've always associated Islam with, uh, with a sense of austerity. So was there this sort of tension there? Or was it all just gold everywhere you looked? I think there is a tension. And the Suleiman of the Lion House is thoroughly convinced by the bling because the Suleiman of the Lion House is really being guided by Ibrahim. And Ibrahim is, is convinced that the way to achieve strategic advantage and leverage is to outspend and impress your rivals. And so that is what they do. And the supreme illustration of this is, is when Ibrahim commissions a crown <laughs> for Suleiman, not an Islamic tradition at all, very much copying Charles V, who has recently been crowned in Bologna as Holy Roman Emperor. And the woodcuts are circulating around Europe and everyone's seen Charles with his crown. And Ibrahim saying, well, you've got to have a crown as well, and we're going to make it bigger. It's going to be bigger than Charles's crown. It's going to be bigger than the papal tiara. And they need Venetian experts' expertise. They need European expertise. And they need gemstones from India. And all of this becomes a major international effort to produce a crown that ultimately is too heavy to ever be worn, is simply displayed on a few occasions. Um, costs, I think, half the annual budget of Egypt, and which Suleiman eventually decides, no, no, this this isn't me. This isn't right. This is a Christian tradition, and so very shortly afterwards, it gets dismantled and and dispersed. But that is that is the Ibrahim that has such a control over Suleiman. From this period, the period that he comes becomes Grand Vizier in 1523 to the moment where he comes to a sticky end in 1536, which is when the book ends, is really Suleiman, it's, it's really the story of young Suleiman, impressionable, martial. He's always fighting. He's always, he's always taking new territory. And he's very much under the sway of Ibrahim Pasha. And you say he's martial and aggressive. Is this built into the Ottoman system that they somehow have to keep expanding? Because they do seem, I think one of the one of the recent popes got into terrible trouble for uh, quoting a Byzantine empire, uh, quoting a Byzantine emperor. I think I think he quoted Leo 
Uh, I'd say, you know, Islam's always coming after us with its sword and <laughs> we're a bit fed up with it. <laughs> so the Pope got into terrible trouble for suggesting that Islam was anything other than peaceful. But but at that time, uh, the Ottomans were pretty aggressive, weren't they? They were they were in expansionary mood. I think, um, and I've, I've covered a lot of more contemporary Islamic uh, or Muslim nations and their policies, their foreign policies as a journalist. And you hear that kind of trope reiterated again, oh, Islam's always been aggressive. It's always been trying to expand. Well, one of the, one of the great historians of early Islam said it was programmed for success. And it was indeed programmed for success. And the definition of success is expansion. The question is, is how, is how you expand. And I think in the Ottoman period, you can just as easily argue that Christendom is in expansionary mode because they're constantly going on about the need for another crusade. They're constantly going on about the need to take back Constantinople. Um, which is outrageous, given how little help they gave it which, in 1453. Exactly. exactly. They gave absolutely no help. They didn't lift a finger to save it. But then they say, oh, we've got to take it back. Charles V calls himself King of Jerusalem. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's the sultans. It's the, sultan, the, it's the sultans. And yet he calls himself King of Jerusalem. So, no, I don't buy that. I don't buy that, that... Um, Islam is uniquely, or that the Ottomans were uniquely aggressive or expansionary. There was a definite sense that both civilizations, both cultures, both polities wished to encroach and wished to defeat the other, for both for rhetorical reasons, but also um, for territorial reasons. It just so happens that the Ottomans were one state and Christendom was divided states that were at each other's throats, but also in the throes of the Reformation. So they were fighting with one hand tied behind their backs. And you do get the sense that the, the Ottomans have a huge advantage in the sense that they're extremely disciplined. They're very good at what uh, Roger Crowley would call bean counting. You know, they know how to organize a campaign. But against that, you know, they're up against just the difficulty, you know, in these days of advancing an army over large distances you know and and taking your supplies and pushing forward and you just get the sense the friction is beginning to tell against them as they as they push up it just gets harder and harder the further you go i think there is a i think for all empires there's there's a period beyond which that there's a there's a place beyond which it, it's simply physically and and logistically impossible to go and for the ottomans that place is vienna and they they get to it twice once under Suleiman, once much later and on both occasions, they're defeated and they cannot go any further. Simply, the, the supply lines are too strong. But the other factor to take into account is that the Sultan would like to be in Istanbul during winter. He doesn't want to be away from home when the Iranians, who are his perennial enemies from the other side, know that he's away. And to spend the winter um, campaigning up in, in, um, in Austria could be extremely dangerous because you're your back door is left open. Yes, they're perpetually fighting on about three different fronts, I guess. You've got the Portuguese facing off in, in the Red Sea. You've got the, uh, the Persians or the Iranians. I hadn't known anything about that conflict between the Ottomans and the Persians. This was, this was complete news to me. Uh, and it seems like they've found it fantastically difficult to handle them. 
very difficult. There's a there's a it, it, what is there's a really interesting historical coincidence here, and I don't think it's anything more than a coincidence that at the precise moment when Christendom is suffering from its Reformation, which of course is the splintering of the of the religion and the introduction of all kinds of new schisms and fissures and disunities. Islam, too, is consolidating between the Shias and, and the Sunnis. And the Ottomans under Suleiman's father, Selim, uh, become uncompromisingly Sunni in a way that they haven't been before. And the Iranians under the Safavid dynasty become uncompromisingly Shia in a way that they haven't been before. It's been much more fluid, the, the definitions have been more loosely applied. But the idea of an Ottoman identity mapping onto a Sunni identity and the idea of an Iranian identity mapping onto a Shia identity becomes much more plausible in this period. And when Selim, Suleiman's father, defeats the Iranians in 1514, he's defeating the people that he knows as the red-headed ones. So they wear red turbans and they're propagating a form of Islam that he does not recognize and that his religious establishment back in Istanbul do not recognize. On the contrary, they consider it heretical, worse than Christians, because to turn, to, to subvert or suborn the true Islam is much worse than simply to be a Christian. It is, a, it is to, to be working in the innards of the religion, which is a much more dangerous thing to do. And these red-headed ones have been spreading across Anatolia, spreading across his dominions, and he finds that they've spread their ideology even as far as uh, the royal family. And so he, he marches east. He also um, conducts what we would now call a genocide or a pogrom against um, Shias in Anatolia, uh, and then he defeats the Iranians and that be beats them back. Suleiman again has a go at the Iranians, but the Iranians are, despite the fact that they're they're much less well equipped, they have much less equipment, much less advanced army. What they have is the advantage of the Persian plateau, and it's a long way from Istanbul to the Iranian border. And if you get there in autumn and you decide to hang around during winter, then winter is going to get you. And the Iranians don't really need to do very much. They just need to get rid of food sources and retreat from the scene and harry your supply lines. And you're going to get into trouble. And this is what happens to Suleiman um, when he goes after them in 1534, 35. And there's a, there's a horrendous moment. There's not a, a pitched battle in which the Ottomans are defeated. But there's a horrendous moment um, at a place called Sultania in northwestern Iran where the Ottoman Empire is ambushed by a very, very heavy snowfall. And a lot of men die in that snowfall, and then they have to try and get to Baghdad, which is their objective, going through the Zagros Mountains and being harried by the Iranian cavalry. Um, and it's an utterly traumatic, and it's a... It's a deeply, um, it's a, it's the army that gets to Baghdad is is not really an army anymore. It's just a it's just a, a draggle. We can sort of 
t begin to tie it up here, um, if you like, because I don't necessarily want to say how it ends for Ibrahim, if you would rather yeah. people, you know, because I think the, the ending is extremely interesting and similarly ending for Alvis uh is 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 extremely interesting so yeah. shall we just not go into that no we we can avoid that yeah. okay but could you just say a little bit about charles v because i suppose he's the great enemy of the ottomans i mean i mean francis is the is the big friend and the venetians aren't too sure but i think they would like to be friendly but but charles v is is the man that uh, is facing off against the ottomans I don't know how familiar listeners are with uh, with the Holy Roman Empire at this stage because it's a huge swathe of territory. And I guess he's got his hands full in all sorts of ways, but it's a formidable uh, enterprise. When I started writing the book, I, sort of, I was learning about the Holy Roman Empire for the first time. And, and I find it utterly implausible, the idea that you have an emperor that is a, an elected emperor by a small number of electors, most of them in, in Germany. But it's perfectly possible that that emperor will have other territories elsewhere, will be the king of other countries. So Charles V's grandfather, Maximilian, was Holy Roman Emperor, but that didn't mean that Charles was going to become Holy Roman Emperor. His, his, his father predeceased him, um, his grandfather. So he had to be put up for election, and he stood for election to the Holy Roman emperor in competition with Francis I, king of France. And Francis famously said, well, it doesn't matter who wins because it's like two suitors going after the same woman. You fight fair, but if you lose, then that doesn't affect the friendship. And of course, Francis having lost, of course, he only lost because Charles spent more bribing the electors, but he <laughs> lost. Um, then uh, never forgave Charles for that and um, became his on-off enemy uh, for the rest of his reign. Now, Charles, through this extraordinary coincidence of births and deaths, happened to be king of Spain, uh, Duke of Burgundy, who claimed to be king of Jerusalem. He owned large swathes of, of Italy. His brother, Ferdinand, who was his sidekick, ruled in his name, um, Bohemia, Austria, much of Hungary. He had an extraordinary amount of real estate. Um, and then they had interests, of course, in the New World, which they were developing. And all of the precious metals that were coming back from the New World were financing the, this constant round of, of um, campaigning that Charles had to go on. Charles spent all his time, all his life in the saddle. He returned to Spain in order to go to, to meet with the uh, with the parliament there and with the nobles there and to impregnate his wife and then off he went again <laughs> <laughs> and and he he and he is the only other character on the stage of history at this time who can claim to be a world empire emperor other than Suleiman and so it is only natural that they became tremendous rivals and they, Suleiman was, was very annoyed by the fact that um, Charles used to refer to himself as, as a world emperor. For Suleiman, that, that was a title that could only possibly belong to him. And 
he the 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 rivalry was extremely intense and it it the theater for the rivalry was it started in in Hungary and it started on land and it went as far as Vienna when where Ferdinand Charles's brother managed to repulse the Ottoman advance and that was a time there's a very perceptive Venetian report that I that is really a remarkable piece of kind of political reporting which dissects this defeat and says there's no way that the Ottomans can go any further on land. The only way that they can attack Habsburg or, or Charles V's interest now is on sea. And the, this is the pivot in Ottoman naval history because up until that point, the Ottoman navy had never been a force it had been a force, but it hadn't it hadn't been preeminent on the seas. The Turks themselves were not enormously good sailors. They tended to use Christians on their galleys. Uh, they didn't have the expertise that the Venetians did in terms of galley building. Their reliance on Christians and also on slaves left them exposed. But there were a number of highly successful Muslim pirates who were magnificent sailors knew the sea lanes extremely well, utterly ruthless. And essentially what Suleiman did was he brought them in and he said, come into my big tent and I'll give you positions and preferment and you can essentially carry on doing what you're doing, but you'll do it for me. And so that's the moment when the Ottomans suddenly become a much more formidable force at sea. And I'm guessing that's where your second book is going to go. Well, the second book goes in lots of directions. I mean, 1538, 1538, the Ottomans invade India. What? <laughs> <laughs> again, again, I feel I've got this sort of Eurocentric uh, perspective. They take Aden. They have a massive campaign into Moldavia. They are very close to landing. I mean, they land uh, on Italy. They don't go as far as Rome. I mean, they're, they're operating on so many different fronts. It's absolutely insane what the Ottomans are, are capable of doing, what that machine is capable of doing. It's quite remarkable. Do you have a rough idea of when you think you might be finished part? Do you have, is, it, is, it, is it a trilogy? If, if I have the appetite and my publisher has the appetite and the readers have the appetite, then it will be a trilogy. Um, because it it his reign divides quite neatly into thirds, uh, but the second book is we don't have uh, two of the major characters from book one who are Ibrahim and Alviza Griti, the son of the Venetian Doge, but what we have is a much more sharply delineated Suleiman. We know much more about him. He's a much more his motivations and his. Um, his his psychological makeup becomes much more clearly defined in this middle period of his life and his relationship with his wife who has several sons by him but the oldest surviving son of Suleiman at this stage is from a concubine and so the subtext of book two is about how we're going to sort out the succession Give us an idea of when you think you might uh, be pushing book two out. 
I was contacted by my publisher very, very politely the other day to find out if I would be delivering on time, which is about today. And I said, oh, dear. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I really say I deliver now. (laughs) I'll edit this bit out if you like, (laughs) so he doesn't hear. (laughs) I have a terribly patient and kind publisher. Um, So it's it's not going to be for, I think it'll be the end of this year when I deliver. And then we'll see. Maybe, maybe if if a miracle takes place, it'll come out next year. But it, I I would say probably be more likely be the spring of twenty five. I'm really looking forward to it because um, it's really it's really not like any other history I think uh, that I can think of. Just wonderful. I um, so I can't wait. You're very kind. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Christopher. Thanks a lot, Russell. Well, that's the end of today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, then I have a big favor to ask. I don't look to make any money from the podcast. There's no advertising or anything like that. I just do this because I enjoy speaking to the guests. And, you know, I'm keen for them to get as big an audience as possible because I think, you know, they are really, really good people. So if you could share it on whatever social media channel you use, tweet it out, whatever it is. And even better, if you could leave a review on iTunes, that would be absolutely fantastic. Anyway, goodbye for now.